Welcome everyone to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including the topics you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I am Linda Schwartz, and I'll be your host for today's show. On today's show, we bring you another inspiring and success story of a Vietnamese-American immigrant, a story of perseverance and persistence, also a beautiful story about courage, hope, and giving. Our guest joining us today is a philanthropist, CEO at Build a School Foundation, a frequent speaker on TED Talks, and he's also the VP of Technology at SAIC. It's my great pleasure to welcome Jimmy Tai. Jimmy, I can go into your background, but I'm sure our listeners would prefer to hear your incredible story directly from you. Take us back, man. Your story has been so inspiring. I, I have not been able to sleep just because I've been waiting for this interview. I want to hear it straight from you. Thank you, Linda. Thank you so much for your kind words. And hello to our listeners out there. Again, my name is Jimmy Tai, and as Linda mentioned, I'm a Vietnamese American. And uh, how far do you want me to go back, Linda? Take us straight to the beginning. I mean, you know, what's interesting to me is that you were in prison after the Vietnam War. Can you start yes. from there? Like that, sure. that to me has was just incredible. Okay. All right. So certainly... I'm going to date it myself here, but right after the fall of uh, Saigon in 1975, our family uh, stuck and uh, we stayed behind. We lived about a decade under the communist regimes and life was hard. You from Laos, so you probably can relate it to some of the experiences that we survived the war, Torrance country is going through the rebuild and, you know, people from the north, the south, all the hatred, all the revenge, all these uh, economic and political struggles. But at the bottom, at the end of the day, what really uh, motivate me to to leave Vietnam is really I see no hope, I see no opportunity, I see no future. Uh, I remember vividly when I was in high school, a friend of us, uh, a classmate to be uh, exact from the north so they are considered the children of the victors and we from the south so we are you know the children of the betrayer or the losers and he made the a, a comments that i can never forget even until today um, you will never get a chance to go to university because all the sins and all the guilt that your parents did to our revolution mm. and uh, i was only 15 at that time. So I didn't really understand why uh, going to college have all of these things. I just want to go learn. I just want to learn and, and be educated. But later on, uh, we we learned that, hey, the society is pretty complicated and uh, we cannot have the opportunity to do so. So that's why at the 15, I went home, told my parents, and they say, hey, you know what? The only way we can get you educated is try to escape the country, go to a different country, and try to see if you can you can uh, learn and be somebody. And for the next two years after that, I spent uh, 15 times uh, down to the Mekong Delta, uh, up to the middle jungle, try to cross land crossover to Cambodia, so hopefully we can make to Thailand or use the Gulf of Thailand to try to escape by uh, rickety boats and did that 15 times. And uh, 
during those uh, uh, attempts, uh, I was captured and sent to prison twice. And twice I escaped from prison. So uh, you can say I'm a really, really bad boy when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> That's just incredible to me. And and can you tell us about the time when, like, how did you end up in the States? And how, how was it an, uh, was there a final escape? Uh, yes. So, so during my 15th attempt, uh, I finally make it out. Uh, we, we make it to Thailand, right? So we, we crossed the Gulf of Thailand. We arrived in Thailand. I was in refugee camp for uh, about six months. And uh, after we go through all the screenings and, uh, and you know, accepting and stuff like that, we got uh, sponsorship to to come to America. So I really consider myself uh, winning the lottery of citizenship. Um, um, I, I never forget that. When I get here, I'm almost 20. I'm just a, a week or two shy away from my 20th birthday. But I really believe uh, this country gave me a second chance. And um, uh, in my mind, we, we just pretty much reborn. I got an opportunity to to you know to live our lives again, and I use that a second chance, and that experience never never, um, and you know I never forget those experience. Yeah, I I can imagine. Um, I mean, my parents are from Laos, and they they escaped, um, in the middle of the night to Thailand through the Mekong River as well right. and ended up at a refugee camp um, with my three mm-hmm. brothers. And I was, um, my family got sponsored right. um, and got, you know, came to Savannah, Georgia. And oh. then I was born here. So oh, okay. I, I really didn't get a chance to hear my mom's story until just a few years ago. But I, I'm curious to know, um, how were the prisoners treated in Vietnam? How, how did how were they treating you when you were after being captured? I think we have to put things in context, right? Because if we compare it to prison, let's say in America and prisoners that in Vietnam uh, right after the war times and uh, capture just because you try to escape the country instead of you are a criminal or do something bad. Uh, it's it's a little bit different. Uh, I did not really know anything better at that time, so I did not really have a reference point. But I say by and large, they they just want to capture uh, us, the escape people. That's how they label us, the escape people, or the traitors, right? They call the traitors. And uh, one time I got interrogated, so I got beat up. Uh, mainly, they just want to find out about who organized all of these things, who are the leaders, and those are the people that get, go after. You know, I'm 15, mm-hmm. 16 at that time, so I figure in my, in their opinion, I'm still just um, uh, kind of like a passenger on, on this journey. They really want to go find out. They really want to hunt down who's the organizer, who who owned the ships, and who on the boats, right? It's not ship, it's a boat, because it's like 30 feet, and you have over 100 people on the rickety boat with 30 feet long. Uh, mm-hmm. So they really want to go after it. And one time they interrogate me pretty badly. Uh, uh, I got beat up, but uh, to be honest with you, I did not know any better. And I just look at around, everybody went through that. So that's why a lot of time when I share some of these stories uh, uh, nowadays, when I have the opportunity to share, a lot of our American listeners seem to be 
appalled and they are horrified by this. But in my opinion, when I look around, you know, you you mentioned about story of your parents and uh, my wife's parents went through the same. A lot of our Vietnamese refugees people went through the same. So yeah, that's why yeah. to me it's like okay, it's no big deal. Tough it up, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and. I totally get that. It's like, it was just the thing that had to be done back then. It was, there was no other choice. If you wanted to be free or have a life, you had to escape. Now, um, when you escaped the first time and you got caught, and then you had to be put back in prison, what, how did you even come to terms about escaping for a second time? Uh, <laughs> you know, when when I get caught a, a second time, they send me to the same prisons, and and this is just I'm talking about maybe like six months apart, so not like years that nobody remember who I was. So everybody still remember I'm the guy that escaped the first time. So first of all, they beat the crap out of me, and then they told me, hey. How did I do that? So, so they can prevent people people doing this for the future, um, and and then they told me how did I do that. I I tell them everything. I remember that they chained me for about a month, and after that, they they send people out to do labor in the field and thing like that, right? So they allow me to go out in the field working for uh, during the daytime, you know, before they put everybody back in, in the, uh, they don't call prison, they call re-education, re-education camp before they put you back in the camp at nighttime. And uh, one time, on the second time, I just, I was out for about a week and already in my mind, I planned this the escape already. And because to me, hey, I stuck here, I have no future. I figured unless I tried to get on the boat and go somewhere, this is this is no no not not what I want. So I'm really determined. Even at 16, I really determined. This is I'm gonna do. And I I witnessed all the horrible thing that no teenager should have seen when you're at that age. You know, robbery, rape, and mm. all of these things. And it can be you know a, a long show to talk about this. But anyway, my mind is so made up. And when I escaped the second time, I just said like, you know what, I will do whatever it take. And uh, I already accept the fact that. Uh, a lot of people never make it to the third country uh, and my mind is made up. I, I put it determined to do this no matter at what cost. And what kept you going? Yeah, I think that's a, a very, very deep question. And sometimes when you say that, how can some kid at 16 have this determination? But to me, a lot of us, right, when you go home and ask your parents, we never consider that ourselves at a little put I mean economical asylums. We really consider ourselves as political, you know, asylums. Because what I desire and what I long for is the opportunities to be free, right? Free to learn, free to earn, free to speak, free to go about. Because you know, when you live in a communist society, you can't even travel without a permission from your local, uh, you know, lo- your lo- local uh, police leaders or, or whatever, right? So everybody watching everybody and everybody kind of snitch on each other. And, and I don't see that the way to live. 
So when I make up my mind that, you know, whatever it takes, I want to be free, I want to learn, and I want, you know, to have the opportunity to educate the people when, when I'm free. Uh, so, so that's really what motivate me to, to risk my life for this. And I already make up my mind that, you know, whatever it costs, I will try to be a free man and I'm going to educate myself. And one day, if I'm lucky enough to do this thing, I will find a way to come back and help others. That's amazing. And so take us now to when you arrive to the States, like, you know, I'm so glad that you and your family were able to make it here. Um, tell us about your life when you guys arrived. What was that like? This is in the mid 80s. So that's, we not, a lot of Vietnamese uh, people escaped right at the fall of Saigon in, in the 75 and they arrived here first. So we came much later uh, by boat and usually they call us FOB, right? F-O-B, Fresh Up the Boat. It's, it, I know it's a name of the comedy, but every time I heard that Fresh Up the Boat, that's usually the, the slang that even the older Vietnamese uh, arrives here. I mean, like we call the first wave Vietnamese immigrants that get here, usually tease our, you know, boat people Vietnamese and they call us FOB. But it's, it was tough because I have no education. I have no money and I have no ability to communicate. And it was really challenging at first. But again, to me, all of these are just obstacles, right? It's not really hardship anymore because when you spend two years of your life and risking your life to escape, then all of these, to, to me, is just obstacle. It's just uh, road, you know, just uh, the bumps on the road that I can easily over, uh, overcome. And, and rightly so. Right after I came here, just a week later, I already tried to sign up to go to ESL classes that even though, you know, I have a dictionary in my hand so I can, trans, you know, look it up. There's no Google Translate back then. <laughs> so I just use the dictionary and look up everything, right? And two months after that, we I already signed up to go to college at nighttime. And I already working at that time at the nighttime janitor at Miramar College. And actually, mm-hmm. that's the opportunity for me to, to see other people attending colleges and that's really reaffirmed my my desire to, to attend college. And uh, it's such a wonderful thing because, you know, you don't have to go to four-year university. You can start out community college and work your way up. And that's exactly what I did. That's pretty incredible. Um, so, you know, now bring us to where we are now. Like you are an accomplished speaker. You've... <laughs> You started some foundations and organizations that are really truly having an impact. Um, share us, share with us a little bit about how that journey came to fruition. So after I spent two years at uh, Miramar and Mesa Community College, uh, and believe me, I always have a Vietnamese English and English Vietnamese dictionaries on my, you know, on my hand because. Everything to me is like, hey, what does this mean? What does this mean? I get by the first two years with ESL and then with, you know, um, dictionary. I got into UCSD. I got accepted to UCSD as a transfer student. And I did my last two years there. And um, and I graduated with a bachelor degree in electrical engineering. Um, it wasn't easy, but uh, again, uh, find a way to get it done. You know, push myself through college, wash car, clean toilet, uh, 
cook at the jack in the box, whatever I have to do, I just push myself through. And after I got my bachelor degree, I joined uh, the civilian workforce for the Navy because um, um, my I was I was saved by the Navy ship, so I just always have the desire to uh, to ride the ship, and hopefully that one day I can help you know the ship spot out refugee at sea or something like that. That's not always in my mind. Uh, by the time I graduated and worked for the Navy, the the refugee things uh, from Vietnam was was pretty much over. But then I worked pretty hard, right? In my mind, I always say, "Hey, how can I be ahead of my peer, ahead of the game?" And if I work in the community or in the office, everybody had bachelor degree. My my thought process is that I need to go get my master to be ahead, and that's exactly what I did. So I went to evening. Uh, master program and I got my master in electrical engineering, got promoted and uh, become a team leader. And even at that time, all my peer have master degrees. And I say, hey, how can I be ahead of the game? So I'm at the crossroads at that time. I would say, hey, should I go for my PhD in electrical engineering or should I go for my MBA so I can go into executive management? And uh, after talking to a couple of folks, I know my personality and I know what I'm capable of. And I went for MBA. So after I got my MBA all, and all of these, while I'm working full time and have children and raise my family, I got promoted and um, I was a program manager for a major, major program with the Navy that, you know, that's run billion of dollars. And uh, right after that, I start get a lot of, inquiries from uh, private industry that that seeks my uh, services. And after almost 15 years with the civil servant uh, in the Navy, I resigned and uh, I, I, I left behind all the safety nets and I, I took a chance with the private sector. I went out, enjoy a Fortune 500 company and uh, worked my way up to become a vice president. So to me, all of those are very natural course of progression. You just have a desire to work, to contribute, and uh, become an expert in your field, and then you get there. Yeah, I just <laughs> want to say congratulations, and I just am so filled with pride and and joy for you. Like, you know, I'm I don't want to cry, but because <laughs> um, I'm on the verge of tears just listening to how determined you were. And, and so when my brothers came to the States, my, my eldest brother was, I believe, um, he was 79. He was about seven years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he had a very, I, I believe he had a very vivid memory of those times in the refugee camp. They, my family spent three years in the refugee camp before they were sponsored to come here. Mm -hmm. And while you were sharing your story, I just, had this flash of just my brother doing mm -hmm. all these things, going to school, pushing himself, joining the military. And now he's a, you know, he's a high ranking um, officer in, in the Marine right. Corps. And, and, and it just so resonated with me how that determination from knowing your past and knowing where you came from right. might've been that, that deep driving force for you to yeah. just go after all the things that you wanted for yourself. So yeah, I just want to exactly. say congratulations and commend you for, for being so um, determined to, to make your life worthy of. Yeah. And, of and what, 
what I really want to add to that is I I really want to congratulate your brother to to serve and of, of, of course first of all thank for his service, and I think I'm not surprised why so many refugees are so successful or yeah. uh, uh, immigrants successful because we all have that determination and uh, we have that drives you know and and that's why when I watch something like the Afghanistan that's going on right now. I really feel feel for these folks because exactly what your parents or what exactly my family went through uh, after yeah. the fall of Shagan. But one thing that I really want to mention when other, you know, I coaching the other young Asian American professional uh, because I was serving the board director for the NAPS program, that's the National Asian American Professional for a while. And the questions always come to me is like, hey, how can you break that bamboo ceiling, right? We don't call that a glass ceiling. We call bamboo ceiling. How do we crack that bamboo ceiling and become a vice president? And I tell them, all you need to do is that fusion that, you know, that by culture in you and make turn that into your, your strength, right? So we are blessed with, with you know, all the, all the historical and all this culture, all this background that we, we brought with us from Southeast Asia. And then we have the blessing of second chance to learn all the technology, all these uh, innovations from the most modern country in the world. So when you fuse those two uh, resources together, you become a very powerful individuals. And yeah. for me, one of the things that I never forget, because during one of these 15 escape attempts, my, my brother, he's only two years older than me, he was shot and killed. So he never got the opportunity to live whatever the life that I live. So that's why when I tell people, don't ever forget where you came from and don't ever take off the privilege that you have for granted. Because a lot of us, when we say people are willing to die for, I really meant it because my brother never got the opportunity to live any of these uh, things that I enjoy. So to me, I don't have the luxury of not of quitting, right, or giving up. A lot of time, people say, "Hey, aren't you tired of keep trying? Uh, uh, have you ever uh, considered quitting?" I say that's not even an option in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. In my lexicon, there's there's no quitting because how can I face my brothers? if I quit, right? So I don't have that luxury. Yeah, I totally get that. It's like, it's almost as if, you know, now it becomes our responsibility, our duty as, you know, for me, I was born here. I was born in 1982. So I really, in in the beginning of my life, I, re- I you know, I felt so out of place and right. out, out of, it was like fish out of water. But as I got older and I learned my parents' story, it was like, it I would be remiss if I if I did not take every opportunity or take advantage of all of the opportunities that I have here because right. you know my my father passed away unfortunately in 1998 when he was only 42 years old so mm. you know it's almost as if it's my duty and my responsibility to do all that I can with the life that I have here right um so yeah I I uh I just I'm just so deeply connected to your story. Um, so, you know, um, obviously you escaped from Vietnam under the worst circumstances and I can imagine it wasn't easy for you to go back, but, you know, obviously considering what happened, um, and then, you know, you established your nonprofit foundation with your wife, Lily, 
and you went back to Vietnam in 2015. And mm -hmm. what, what was that like for you? And what was the inspiration behind um, your foundation, building a school foundation? Yeah, that. thank you for asking that question because I just want to, to share why when we form the leadership you know, uh, academy, we really emphasize on passion meets compassion, right? Because the passion is all the things that I share with you and our audience in the last you know, 20 minutes or so. The passion, the desire to learn and to teach and to do this. But at the end of the day, the compassion is something that glue us together because you can do all your passion, you can do all desire, but there can be more the individual, you know, uh, challenges that you want to accomplish. But when you feel that with the compassion, what do you meant to do for others? And this is something that I want to give a lot of credit to my mom, my, my lay mom, because uh, just like you, your, your father passed away, my mom passed away, you know, 13 years ago. Um, and, and when I got the invitation from Vietnam Academy of Science and Technology, invited me back to give a talk on tsunami warning because I'm considered a tsunami warning expert and help them with, you know, build the tsunami warning system and the earthquake uh, forecast center in Vietnam. I was I was really torn to get that that invitation. So I went home, I told my mom, I said, Mom. These are the same people that pretty much ruin our family, and these are the same people that pretty much, you know, uh, destroy our family. Uh, and now they want me to come back and help them. Uh, what do you think? Because in my mind, it's no way that I want to do that. And my mom told me something that I never forget, and it really changed my philosophy in life forever. She said that the people that hurt our family is not the same people that your ability, your knowledge can save them from. Right. Where is your compassion? Wow. Yeah. And and it took me a while, and then I came to terms with that. So I said, I will be glad to be back. And that's the thing that I want to share with uh, folk. It doesn't matter what in the past, but if you um, really want to uh, make a difference in lives of others, you got to think compassionately and you got to put the past behind. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I listened to my mom and hop on that plane. I move forward. And that's why I think to help those folks, I just want to help the kids that uh, in me that didn't have a chance to learn. And that's why when I say, what can I do when I return to uh, Vietnam? I said, I say, you know what, education and children, those are those are the people that I want to help. And that's why we 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 founded the Build School Foundation, and for the last six years, that all our spare times that we uh, devoted to. That's pretty amazing. And you and your wife Lily helped build over eighty schools and bridges in Vietnam and the Philippines and Cambodia in the last six years. That's a huge accomplishment. Right. And can you? Uh, you know, I don't recall hearing the mission of build a school foundation. Can you share the mission of your foundation for us, please? Yes. Our vision is very, very simple. Uh, we want to build 100 schools globally, right? So not only Vietnam, and we, we accomplished that in the last six years. We built up today, it's 82 schools and bridges in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Cambodia, and in Kenya, this year we can Kenya. And now I know you have tied to Laos and I'm pretty excited because after this, hopefully we can connect and hopefully we can do something similar in Laos. That's amazing. 
I, I would love that. I, I, I know that, you know, there are other foundations um, that are also building schools, you know, in Laos as well. And maybe there's right. a, there's a, some, get some synergy there and I can help you make some connections. Um, right. So w- what's next? What's, what's <laughs> on the horizon for you? I think a lot of people have been asking me this question that I asked myself when I reached to 50s or so, I figured out, hey, now the goal to 100 is is no problem. And I would not be surprised with our 5K walk that we plan to do on September 26th here at the Hilltop Park at San Diego. We certainly can raise 50,000 and build, you know, the rest of the 18 school bridges that we try to do. But when we done with this, my wife Lily told me that, hey, you need to stop. You need to spend time with me. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that's something that uh, she put a mandate on me. But knowing <laughs> me, that probably not going to happen. But I think one of the things that I really want to tackle, and to be honest with you, uh, Linda, I've been traveling the country enough to speak and to teach. And I saw the homeless issue is something that really, really challenging. So I probably thinking about how to build a homeless shelter. I'm going to start out with San Diego and see I can scale up and I see how I can help uh, the homeless uh, community to uh, to regain their dignity and value and become a valuable contributors to our society. That personally would be my next challenge. That is incredible. And, you know, my husband and I talk a lot about that and, and he's been wanting, to, that's been in his heart as well. So I'd love to connect with you with that and support you in that mission. And we're at the top of our time together. Um, so can you share a little bit about the 5k walk that's coming up in September, where, when time, and then also where we can uh, learn more about you? Yes. I'm so excited to share with you. So everybody, all the listeners, if you listen to our mission, you touch by our stories and you want to help, mark your calendar, save your day, September 26th at 8 a.m. Hilltop Community Park, 9711 Oviedo Way. Or you can go to our website, buildaschoolfoundation.org. Again, buildaschoolfoundation.org. You will have all the information on our website. Come out, bring your family, come bring your boyfriend, girlfriend, dog, cat, whatever. We see a family event and walk. We have mass. We have snack. We have entertainment. We have uh, music. We have a conical hat. The traditional conical hat that we try to to sort out and in the past we have about two two to three to four hundred people come and join us so this would be something that you don't want to miss amazing thank you so much i want to thank our guest today jimmy tai for joining us and to learn more about jimmy and his work please visit his website at jimmytai.com that's j-i-m-m-y-t-h-a-i.com Be sure to subscribe to Asian Voices Radio, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices Radio show. I am your host, Linda Schwartz. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care. Bye now.